the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this privilege to be able to dive into Daniel and, and dissect what you want us to learn, especially during these turbulent times that we're living in today. And Lord, just um, be with me. And, um, and again, it is a humble prayer. Just remove what is, what is not important and keep what is. So we give this time over to you now, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, you know, I'm going to tell a little bit of a retail, um, but add a little commentary in some of that. But Daniel went to Arioch, so we know where, where we pick up in chapter 2, verses 24 through 49. And we know that Daniel went to Arioch after God had revealed that the dream meant that, um, what the dream meant, and that he gave God praise for it. I talked about that last week, how important giving God praise and every little thing that we do. So Arioch, we know, took Daniel to the king, and Scripture says this in, um, oh, there's your pretty picture. I forgot to tell you, God, you know, worked hard on these things, guys. No. And then, there we go, ta-da! Then, okay, so in verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And we talked about that a little bit. But I want to pause for just a moment. And Daniel, when he started, he's the author of our book. And in chapter 1, and now here, this is the only time he refers himself first to himself in the Babylonian name, Belshazzar. He introduced us with, my name's been changed, this is what it means. And then now it's, and the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, because he's writing this. But that's it, you'll never hear it again. He's going to refer to himself as Daniel at this point, from here on out. Because that's who he is. He is a Hebrew. And um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel if he could tell him what the dream was and interpret it as well. And I love that because Daniel replies really in short, um, no, because he says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and these visions that passed and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Now, before we break that down, there's such humility in this response that Daniel has. And you know, when we share the gospel with somebody, we may not, we're not supposed to have all the answers. If we do, great. I'm so happy if you're one of those people that can go, well, and Matthew says this, and Luke says this, and then, and da, 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 da. yay. And we should strive for that. But don't be afraid that you may not have all the answers. What's more important is that the Bible does and that you point them to the Lord. Because that's exactly what Daniel's doing. He's saying, nobody can do this, but I have a God who does. You know, now the Lord revealed the mystery to Daniel, which was good. So Daniel wanted to make sure that the king knew that it wasn't Daniel's cleverness or his talent or his wisdom that had done any of this. It was very important that the king understood that. In other words, he wanted no attention except uh, on him because he knew God was the center of all of this. God does everything intentionally as part of a divine plan. So we have to remember that. You see... God revealed the mystery. God revealed the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's challenge to the men. God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. God, gave, God revealed the dream to Daniel. God interpreted the dream, and God will cause the events to pass. And God is able to reveal mysteries because he is sovereign. He's our sovereign God who controls all events. And like I said earlier, 
God's word provides revelation, not mystery. So we'll never be confused if we go digging into the word. You press the scriptures, you're going to find your answers. So as we know, there's a statue. All right. So uh, it's a big statue of this big king. And so we, we already talked about how the breakdown of that was. Well, all right. The gold head. The gold head we know represents King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom. Everything after the head of gold represents kingdoms and world powers that were in the future to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, but they are in the past from our perspective. Um, And we know this because because of history. So let's break this down a minute. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom. The Babylonian kingdom, after they defeated the Assyrians, which came from the north, um, they became a huge empire. And today, in today's speak, I don't know if you can see that or not, they would be parts of Turkey, parts of Iraq and Iran, parts of Syria, Israel, Jordan, parts of Saudi Arabia, and part of Egypt. I mean, it was immense. It was immense. But then we have the silver chest and arms. The statue represented the nation that came to power after the fall of Babylon, and that was the Medo-Persian Empire. That is, that was in 539, Darius the Mede, or we know him as Cyrus the Great, conquered the city of Babylon, and the Medo-Persian became the supreme world power. Now, they expanded past the Babylonian Empire, so... It's pretty much the Babylonian Empire and then some. They um, have taken on the rest of what we know as Turkey. So they expanded there. Then they expanded in what we know as Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and parts of India. And, um, um, and the empire lasted 200 years. And how they came to power is a very unique story that we'll get into when we get into this part of Daniel because he talks about it. But it's very, very interesting. And um, but I will I'll save that for when, when we get down there. Just a note, though, this particular kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, is Queen Esther, the Book of Esther. This is the kingdom that was in play when the Book of Esther was written, and that happens seventy years after the kingdom, after the empire take uh, the fall of Babylon, happens seventy years later. Haman almost annihilated the Jewish people, but Esther saved them, and today it is still celebrated with the Feast of Purim. So this time in history is still recognized in Jewish history and celebrated. Then came the uh, bronze, and in 330 B.C., Persia falls to Alexander the Great. So this is the Greek Empire, and it's represented by bronze metal, and that's significant because bronze was the material used for all the armor in Alexander's army. It was a relatively new metal, and Alexander wanted the, wanted the new metal. Um, they increased their empire, uh, of course, Greece, and the Greek empire, um, the empire was in the belly and the th- top of the thighs of the statue. And although the kingdom was, was a single united kingdom under Alexander the Great, after he died, it was divided among four generals. There's, uh, you can see Cassander. I can't, re- I can't really pronounce that name. It starts with an L. And then you have the, the 
Greek Empire here, the Seleucid uh, Empire, and then you have the Ptolemaic Empire. So these are the two big ones that end up staying. These guys uh, fall off from assassinations, battles, what have you. They go away, and two big ones are left. And that may be why the top of the thighs are represented with the bronze, to represent the two um, kingdoms. Um, the Ptolemic kingdom started with Ptolemy I Sauter. Now, I don't write these names. That's what his name was. And he was a close childhood friend and trusted general to Alexander the Great. So just to note, the reason I bring him up is after Alexander's death, he was part of this kingdom, and he decided to name himself Pharaoh. And what came out of this kingdom 275 years later was Cleopatra. So I just, a little, little fun fact there. So, um, um, and then after her death, after Cleopatra's death, Egypt became a Roman province. So then we go to the, the Seleucid uh, Empire, and that began with Seleucus Nicator, which he was a guy, and in 312 BC. And after he helped assassinate another commander-in-chief, so he was part of some of this, all this taking over. He um, um, lost my place. I'm so sorry. He was given Babylon and the entire eastern part of Alexander the Great's empire. So all this happened, all this chaos happened after Alexander the Great um, died. Now, the reason I bring that up, I want to remind you, all these kings and all these conquerors, they're ruthless leaders and they're all unstable. And what came out of this empire here is a name you're going to remember as we get into Daniel, Antichus Aphinius IV. And Antichus Aphinius IV uh, comes 150 years later, and he is part of Daniel's prophetic vision. And Daniel refers to him as the abomination that causes desolation. That's how he's known. And eventually, though, what happens during... Antichus Aphinius's reign is um, the Jews, there's a sect of Jews called the Maccabees, and they rose up in a civil war to take back their temple, and they won, and this, at this time, because of this, they also celebrate something called Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah begins. And uh, I mention this because Antichus Aphinius IV is considered the precursor to the Antichrist. So there's a lot of comparison to his demeanor and what he was all about in revelation to the Antichrist, but we'll break that down as we go on. But I just want you to remember that, and that's the kingdom that he came out of. So anyway, so now we move on, and then you have the Roman Empire, and that's represented by the legs of iron. Iron breaks and smashes everything, and that is precisely what happened when Rome ruled the world. The legs are a picture of two divisions of the empire. So there's, um, there we go, sorry. Um, so there's the eastern branch, the Byzantine, Byzantines. Well, I went online and they said it's Byzantines. Yeah, I, was, I pronounce it by, Byzantines too, but I went online and they said it, you pronounce it Byzantines, Byzantines. Uh, which lasted until the Middle Ages, around 1453. And the Western branch, which is Europe, and that lasted about 500 years. Now, its original capital city, original capital city was not Rome, it's what we know now as Istanbul, Turkey. 
The empire survived the fragmentation and the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century A.D. and continued to exist for an additional thousand years until it fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1553. So, during most of its existence, though, the Roman Empire was the most powerful economic, cultural, and military force in Europe. So when you think about the iron legs, looking there, iron is the strongest metal known, and the Roman Empire ruled with an iron will. So it, you can see why it's connected with Rome. All right, and then we have the feet of iron and clay. Now, um, Smitty brought up, brought up the fact that it was baked clay. That's true. The word for baked clay is hasap commonly used as a type of pottery. So the feet were composed of one of the strongest metals known to mankind, which is iron, and then one of the most vulnerable materials, because it was like glass, um, was baked clay. That could be broken just by hitting it with your hand, just like glass. So when we started this, I said we weren't going to go down a lot of metaphoric. We were going to go with the, what I call the literal grammatical historical view. So with that in mind, the feet and the ten toes that are partly iron and partly clay are said to represent a restored or revived Roman Empire, which will appear at the close of the age as a ten-nation confederacy under the leadership of the Antichrist. Now, that's just the basic. But let me just give you a quick little example of something. Several years ago, when the European common market was around, and that's where we came, the euro. Remember the euro dollar that was supposed to be big? Okay, that was composed of ten nations. And this seemed fitting. This particular part of scripture, there's a lot of hubbub about this. And then now that the market has expanded to the European Union, this view becomes too narrow. So it's, it's not, but it was something to look out for. So that says that no one, but we can see now how current events, we, we can be aware and compare it to scripture and see. It may not be that obvious, but we might know. So, so, but also going back to the feet, this could mean, again, it could mean a one-world government that may be coming or an attempt to blend a dictatorship and a democracy. Another interpretation, um, I believe you had mentioned it, Julia, um, uh, represents the intermarriages of the ancient kings and the weakening of the families because of the intermarriages. I mean, that's what World War I, everybody was related to everybody in Europe, you know. And, and they all had kids and intermarried, and it did weaken the families. Um, so history's shown that too. But nevertheless, this kingdom, this, these feet, this clay and iron, will not be um, as strong as the previous kingdoms. But notice it's also a smaller kingdom. But its foundation, but it is the foundation on which the other kingdoms are standing. So no one knows for sure the true meaning of the feet. However, what we do know is that all of these past kingdoms were opposed to God. Every one of them. So let's look at the common denominators of the kingdom. Each were political and schemed to take over everyone and everything. All the conquering lands and everything, right? Each had a powerful military presence. Each were opposed to God and to God's people. And if we take the feet to mean a coming kingdom, it is possibly that this could be a final great city and civilization opposed to God. And that city is referred to in Revelation as the city of Babylon, or Babylon the Great. 
It makes sense that this would be a conglomeration of all the other past kingdoms. And it will stand for what they stood for, being the foundation of the statue. All are godless, all are opposed to the Jewish nation, and all will not stand against Jesus Christ when he returns. So that's just these are just some common basic threads of what the commentators are saying. But then we have the rock. The rock is considered the fifth kingdom and arises from the rocks and strikes the statue and the other four kingdoms. The rock is represented as a metaphor this time um, of God our Father throughout the Old Testament. The rock represents Jesus Christ also. He is also known as the stumbling block, the stumbling stone, uh, to other nations, including Israel, but to Christians, he becomes the cornerstone of our faith. So there's that metaphoric language of the rock. So when he comes again in our future, he will strike the final blow, ending all kingdoms of the world, and according to scripture, he will bring forth his millennial kingdom. Right? Okay. So, so look at the king's response. Now Daniel's just said all this. The king's response we talked about. The king says... The king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that, um, that an offering and incense be pres- presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar may not have experienced the conversion that we were hoping for yet, uh, but he did acknowledge who Daniel's God seems to be. Daniel's God is the God of all nations. He is the king of all kingdoms. God is the architect of history. And God is sovereign over all. Which brings me to the question, though, why did God bring this dream to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, all right. This was a prophetic dream for Israel. Confirming for them that deliverance was not going to happen next week and next month. They're in captivity for a while now. Their captivity was going to be long-term, but God had not abandoned them. Remember, God took his hands off of them because they were very, very disobedient. But he's not going to abandon them. He never will. God is still in control, and he will establish the Messianic kingdom through this nation like he had promised. And then two, to establish Daniel and his friends in positions of influence in the Babylonian government. So Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with Daniel and his God that he made Daniel one of the principal rulers of Babylon, and he placed him in charge of all its wise men. All those pagan guys, a boy and a Jew, over all the king's advisors. Wow. God can still work in pagan environments, so be encouraged if your work environment is hostile. God is still there, and he may have strategically placed you there, Jackie. (laughs) Um, And then number three, The dream revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's God is the true God. He is God who who has real power. He reveals to Nebuchadnezzar exactly who he is, and God will continue to reveal it to him. So God often rewards, uh, his rewards usually are preceded by difficult trials. So if you're in a difficult trial, have hope. There's reward ahead. This was a very difficult task. We talked about that at length. The anxiety and what was, this, what was up against these poor guys that were all going to lose their life if they couldn't interpret. And, and um, 
and the king and his anxiety being a new and untested king. I mean, there's lots of stress here. But Daniel sought God and he believed that he would come through. That's the thing. The posture of his heart is he believed who God was. And if God chose to have him beheaded, then that was God's will. He was totally surrendered to God's will. And at the end of this whole ordeal, Daniel wisely requested the political advancement of his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar wisely granted it. Why do you think I said it that way? He could trust these boys. And Daniel needed his Jewish friends. He wasn't going to be isolated around on this pagan environment. He needed like-mindedness, which tells us we need to be around our Christian brothers and sisters. That's important. Um, And um, this has God's handprints all over it. God plans all these kind of things. So... There's a commentator I follow. His name is Kenneth Gangle, and he said, I love his quote, All earthly power, even that exercised by the greatest of human rulers, will ultimately fall before the God of gods and the Lord of kings. So just remember that when, we're, when you hear in the news about all the world powers and all the goings-on in North Korea and just, you know, I mean, God, you know, all this brouhaha. God's in control. He's got it. So don't, like I said, don't let today's current events drag you down. There is a wonderful and loving God who is very, very well aware of what is going on down here and has a plan for it all to unfold. He's not playing cards with Gabriel and he's not paying, not paying attention. He's not, you know, he's well, well aware. Our job is not to look or trust in what we see, but to seek the kingdom first for answers and the rest falls in place because it says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And that includes wisdom, discernment, direction. He will lead, but we've got to seek him first. Press those scriptures. See what they're saying. Search them out. So let's keep ourselves kingdom focused. It's the only way through. And I will end with God's own words. God said in Isaiah 28.16, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. I just love that because, I, you know, this is all hid. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Just remember that. And with that said, what have we to fear from what the future holds when we know the God who holds the future? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that you hold the future. I thank you that you are the God of gods and the Lord of lords, and we are to put our trust, our unabandoned trust in you. You hold the future. And Lord, we pray, we surrender, and we plead, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. And in your time and in your will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, God. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.